And that was really the, the start of it all. A lot of things then started to spill out from that. We, we, we started to get a, a restaurant culture. People like Sean Lu came on the scene and, and they were heady days because people would say, where did you get that fresh basil? Now, yes, gradually we started to have these things to work with that were very exciting. Welcome back to The Forager. I'm Nicole Huck, and we have got an episode for you today, I've got to say. We're joined by the editor of SA Life magazine, and what a magazine it is, Penny Yap. <laughs> Hi, Nicole. How many people want your job? Uh, quite a few, <laughs> I But then if they knew what it really entails. It's been a big and very, very busy couple of months for you because you've got this magnificent publication out now, 350 pages plus. 352, thank you very much. <laughs> I counted them. I've proofread them all, believe me. This is the Essay Life at Food and Wine list 2019. It's actually our seventh edition of Essay Life Food and Wine. Usually it comes out in September. We start working on it in January, and then in September, in spring, we release this wonderful guide to everything you can eat and drink around the state. But this year, because we've declared July to be Food Month, we decided to bring publication forward. <laughs> so we started in January and finished in June. Wow. And the magazine is out now. It is essentially a Bible as a guide of what and where. It really does cover everything you need to know about eating and drinking all over the state, you know, from the Eyre Peninsula down to the Limestone Coast or from Flinders down to Kangaroo Island and, of course, Adelaide as well. We've got the whole state covered. Now, so what sort of things have you explored? Restaurants, bars, the best breakfast you can have, where to get the best coffee wherever you are in the state, where to drink, where to stay, what to do while you're there. One of the elements that I love is this idea of experiences. Mm, absolutely. Because that seems to me to be a growing space in South Australia. I think it is, certainly. I mean, people don't just want to go to a restaurant anymore. They want to see the food being made or they want to help the chef make it, learn how to make it for themselves. And they want to go to the farms and pick the produce for themselves and mix the gin for themselves and make their own cocktails. Brilliant. Have you seen a lot of change over the years as you've been putting this together in terms of SA Life? We certainly have. We really have noticed a really increased interest in where people can go and eat and what they can go out and do around the state. When we talk about some of those changes, our guest on the episode today is Nigel Hopkins. Good old Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice reference. Oh, we've worked together for years. <laughs> I mean, really, he's a stalwart. He's probably the best known food reviewer yep. in South Australia. Been doing it for a long, long time. And does he have some stories to tell? He sure does. I think I've referred to him previously as veteran restaurant reviewer, Nigel Hopkins. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think he'd forgive me for that. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that Nigel is able to capture is that nostalgic look back mm -hmm. and then how that is shaping our future. Well, he has a lifetime of knowledge in this area, doesn't he? And I think that's why I went to him and asked him for 10 of his favourite restaurants around the state. Not to pick his top 10 because he couldn't possibly. He's, he may have a top 100, top 200, <laughs> but just 10 of the real favourites that he will go back to and spend his own money at. Because let's face it, when you've had as many free dinners as Nigel Hopkins... <laughs> Places you want to go and take your own wallet to have to be pretty special. And we've paired him today with Kath Carey, who mm -hmm. is a name synonymous with South Australia's restaurant scene. That's perfect because, of course, she is a chef. She was part of the golden era of chefs in Adelaide and cooked at the Bridgewater Mill in the Glory Days and the Adelaide Art Gallery restaurants. She's a perfect foil, I think, for Nigel's wealth of knowledge on the other side of the table. So before we hear from Nigel and <laughs> Kath, I've got to ask, where do people get their hands on this? Because this is one of those lists that you want to hang on to. I mean, I think people will have it in their homes 
items on their coffee tables for years to come. Like, honestly, at 352 pages, it will keep you going all year. And yes, it's in newsagents now and also in foodland stores. So just look out for our gorgeous cover with Chef Simon Bird ladling some delicious steaming gravy over a wonderful-looking meal. Now, you take a breather. <laughs> Time to breathe. You've, you've done it, girl. It's um, out there. This is out there, yes. And I have two other titles going to press, but, you know. <laughs> no rest for the wicked. No rest for the wicked. Well, I've been excited about today's Forager podcast because I couldn't think of two better people to put together to talk about the magnificent world of food and South Australia's connection with food and particularly the restaurant game. I'm joined today by Nigel Hopkins, who is, of course, an acclaimed restaurant reviewer, food writer, uh, an extraordinaire. Welcome, Nigel. <laughs> very nice to be here. Thanks, Nicole. It's a pleasure. And Kath Kerry, who, of course, is very, very well known here in South Australian circles, probably best known for the Bridgewater Mill. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, I think so. Well, that was written about a lot. But, um, and then, of course, the art gallery later. And then the art gallery later, which... Um, that's where I feel that um, I'd used all the things that I'd learnt in dealing with, you know, Petaluma Restaurant and people and brought it all to the fore and I'd become a, a person who was kind and nice and understanding. <laughs> and I used, uh, when, I, when I got to the art gallery, because I loved being there, but uh, that's when I became, a, you know, a counsellor for my staff and a an understanding shoulder to cry on for my customers who were glutards or lactose intolerant. Or, and, um, no, I'd learnt to become, um, you know, um, I lost, I didn't lose the fire, but I became a lot more tolerant. Does that mean you weren't kind and nice before then? No, I was always kind because <laughs> I am a kind person, but I could be stroppy and opinionated at a time, uh, sometimes when... Um, I didn't need to be. Well, like any good chef, really. I suppose, yes. <laughs> Now, I want to take you both back to when you first met and, and that we call it the golden era, I suppose, of the food scene here in South Australia. Nigel, can, can you recall the time that your path and Kath's paths crossed? Well, our paths crossed, but I'm not even sure that we met. I suppose we did, but it was back in the days, and I'm not sure when this would have been, Kath, you might remember. Was it late 70s, early 80s? It would be late 70s, yes, yeah. And that's before we had any real sort of restaurant culture. We had a few places like the South Australia Hotel and a few other landmark restaurants, even a few Chinese restaurants at that time. But at that stage, there was no innovative cooking happening in, really at all in, in South Australia. And that started perhaps when um, another woman who went on to become a, a very well-known restaurateur, Belinda Hannaford, started doing home dinners and she used her own dining room. She had a small place in uh, North Adelaide, and she would sit 10 or 12 people and cook for them. And Kath, uh, very soon to, after that, took that on as well. And that, and she had a two-storey terrace house in Carrington Street in the city, uh, which she shared with wine writer Philip White. He uh, became a wine writer while we were you know, together, yeah. yeah. But at that time, Philip was a most unlikely uh, waiter. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone who knows him now. Well, um, at the time, I have to say, I could say we have our differences, but I must say that at the time he was always impeccably turned out. He was always very meticulous and he's one of the tidiest people I've ever lived with. Hmm. Um, you know, had a, an eye for things being well done. So, in fact, he, he wasn't... Um, 
he wasn't all that strange as a <laughs> as someone to be can a, you, a waiter. Can you imagine today how much somebody would pay to be there for that now? For I know, you to cook for them I in know. your house oh. and for Philip White to serve them the wine. It would be amazing. <laughs> it would be amazing. Or even the the person who followed him was uh, Howard Twelvetree. He became um, a waiter and he was always impeccable as well. <laughs> you did well with your waiters, didn't you? I, I really did. Yes, I really did. And that was really the, the start of it all. A lot of things then started to spill out from that. We, we, we started to, to, to get a, a restaurant culture. People like Chong Lu came on the scene and, and, and others, Philip Searle and so on. And they were heady days because people would say, where did you get that fresh basil? Mm. And yes, product-wise, it wasn't just the people coming on. It was all of a sudden we not all of a sudden, I suppose, but gradually we started to have these things to work with that were very exciting. And we were reading because a couple of interesting books came out. You know, the Michel Gerard Nouvelle Cuisine. Nope. These books started to come out, which were amazing, and we would read them like novels. You know, mm. did did you have a sense at that time that something quite pioneering was occurring? Oh yes, it was very, very much, very much yeah. so. Chefs used to meet at Lucia's. Um, people That's like uh, Peter Jama and others would mm-hmm. meet there, and, and that was organised by Gabby Gate, by Gabrielle Gatti. Yeah. And how wonderful! Because in this series of the Forager podcast, yeah. we've also been talking with the youngest generation of Lucia. So oh, uh, very apt. Right. Yeah. Well, the Cheers was right there at the start. It was a, it was a meeting point because they had the best coffee in town, really, at that time, and it's still pretty good. And what did you talk about? I would have loved to have just been a fly on the wall for those gatherings. That was pulled together by uh, Gabriel because he he knew of this happening in Lyon in France around Paul Bocuse. And I think he thought that, uh, you know, he came out to Australia. He was just a young chef. And he thought that he could be a centre for, for that sort of thing. And he certainly he certainly was. I think we talked about food. We talked about um, standards. We talked about la nouvelle cuisine, you know, which is still misunderstood. <laughs> but, you know, what it meant. And he would cook these lovely light dishes with um, that epitomised nouvelle cuisine with the sauce around, not covering the food, not having a menu not setting your menu by classic dishes, but what was at the market. Yes, we certainly did know that something was happening. Nick was one of those. And in those days, he had a, a, he had a restaurant um, called Le Paris, mm-hmm. uh, which is out near the Buckingham Arms or was opposite that. And I remember going there um, and it was only a little 30-seater or whatever. He still swears, he swears that he actually started Nouvelle Cuisine in, in Adelaide. I'm sure that would be disputed by others, but, but he is convinced that he was the first one to start cooking in that style. And he may well have been. That's, that's, that's quite possible. I know that we were reading, 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 and Philip Searle and I can remember a day we were lying on, a, on someone's back lawn and I was reading, translating for him, a Parry Match uh, ma- a magazine which talked about these new chefs in France. And he was a teacher then, an art teacher. I was still a teacher. And just talking, talking, talking about this fantastic movement. And, of course, Philip was never one to do anything by halves. I mean, he would do amazing things. Kath, you mentioned something then that I think is is also worth worth mention. Some of the chefs were trained. People like Peter Jama, he was a Swiss-trained chef. Nick Pabrizariakis had come out of Athens and, and so on. But of that 
new generation of chefs coming through, hardly any of them were trained. That's true, yes. You know, when you think of Luca Threptis, who had Mazes, he, he studied art. Uh, you mentioned Philip mm. Searle. Anne Oliver was a technical illustrator, mm. uh, and she had Mistress Augustine's. Mm. And again, highly inventive, you know, radically radic- In fact, style. you could say that uh, we hadn't been um, shackled by uh, formal training. Sure. I mean, things perhaps have changed now, but we, and I carried this on with my staff, you know, that I would say, you don't need to go to TAFE. If you read Michel Guerard's book, From Cover to Cover, you will know everything you need to know. And we read and we read and we played and tried and we weren't shackled. I think that's important. You're pushing boundaries, you're exploring, you're inventing, you're discussing, you're sharing. How long did it take the consumer to go, something wonderful is happening here? I think they cottoned on pretty With well. With the help I mean, of they, journalists. They, yeah. were, they were used to Chinese and Italian well, and, and that was probably only occasionally. I mean, Howard Twelvetree, who we mentioned before, as a food writer, I think is the, the greatest food, one of the greatest food writers we've had in Australia, and there have been a number. I was in awe of him because I would read his stuff and think, gosh, he knows so much. Howard just had this infinite knowledge of stuff. You, you could ask him about a source and he could tell you everything, but probably tell you who invented it. I was doing the consumer stuff, you know, for a different agenda, really, at the at working for the advertiser. But yes, education was part of it. But I think it was, we'd come out of the dark ages. We'd come out of that, that post-war British cooking mm-hmm. era where we were vaguely aware of things like garlic and olive oil and suddenly they came to life. I think people did take to it because, first of all, a lot of this food looked pretty. Mm-hmm. How it went downhill and why it got a bad reputation, Nouvelle Cuisine and this new movement that we took on, was that... Um, people started to make a dish look pretty without considering flavours. So I'm talking way down the track, bad operators. So uh, beetroot is a um, fabulous colour. Kiwi fruit is a fabulous colour. Raspberry is a fabulous colour. Let's put them together and we'll call it a dish and perhaps it didn't work. But the thing is, it had an appeal. People were a bit funny about um, whether or not the serves were big enough, but that was just general meanness and prejudice because the serves were big enough. By the end of your meal, you were very, very satisfied. But it was punchy flavours, it was fresh, but also it looked good on those huge white plates. Kath said earlier, that, you know, because they're untrained, they're unshackled. And, and that led to this enormous sense of excitement and discovery. I've, I've often described some of our winemakers as the heretics of the new world, like we've taken the best of the old world and invented a bit and grown from that. The cooks did the same thing. At first, yes, we were reading the books, everyone from, you know, Michel Girard, Bacchus, all of these people, all different styles. And and for a long time, we were in awe of these French chefs. I mean, as a journalist, I, I found myself being sent over five years in a row to talk to, me, to Michelin three-star chefs and Brilliant. be in their kitchen during service and, and then go through their cellars and their gardens and if they had a room, stay there as well. And we were all in awe of that stuff. And then we got over that and we entered, I think, really from the sort of mid-80s through to the perhaps it cut out around about the mid-90s, a golden age of Adelaide cooking where the heretics in our kitchens did fabulous things and they were so exciting. And I look back at some of the menus that I've kept Mm -hmm. for people who cooked at that time and you think, no one's cooking that stuff anymore. There are restaurants that are original and 
interesting that we have now, and some of them you know, more so. In, uh, at that time in Adelaide, we probably had eight or nine restaurants with chefs like Cam who were cooking really interesting. And it was derivative food, but they'd taken the, the stuff they'd been reading about uh, in Europe and tweaked it mm. and given it a very Australian edge, um, none more so probably than Philip Searle. Definitely. And also it was a time that also coincided with French chefs coming over here and doing like a show. You know, and people, they really took to that. Mm-hmm. But I sensed at a time with Marc Menor and a few of the others that French food was going downhill. It had run out of steam at the same time as Australia was actually on the on the up and up. You talk about Australia being on the mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. How did South Australia then compare? No, we were the There was a Victorian uh, food writer, and I'm trying to remember his name, but he, he had the grace to at that time to say that the best food in Australia was coming out of, uh, out of Adelaide, and the restaurant at the then Hyatt Regency, now the Intercon, uh, was Flurio Restaurant mm-hmm. under Orr's and mm-hmm. And he believed, and I think many believed, that that restaurant was the best hotel restaurant in the country. Oh, Orzanane was an absolute technician. A total um, nutcase. He was <laughs> so wonderfully precise. It I've, was so beautiful. I, I've got a menu here um, where Orzanane and Chong Lu did a collaboration dinner, oh. 2001. And the, the, the sort of things, we've got essence of seafood with abalone, tuna, pickled ginger and coriander mm-hmm. to start. Blue-eyed Travella steamed in lettuce with spring garlic and globe artichokes, you know. Razor fish with tripe and cherry vinegar. Salad of duck neck sausage with veal sweetbread and marrow. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> beef, oh. beef cheeks. This is just the one dinner. I'll tell you what it cost in a moment. Beef cheeks, fillet, tendons and marrow on parsley-scented beans and I new potatoes. I could see chong there. Oh, yeah. That was in, held in the Grange at the Hilton Hotel. That was $85 per person. Mm. You know, How extraordinary. With, with the wines. Imagine that. Oh. It certainly makes your mouth water. It was also that era of the intellectualisation of, of food. You know, and, and certainly. I, before we came on air, you were talking about the first symposium of Australian gastronomy in Adelaide, 1984, um, started by Michael Simons. Michael and I had a lot of, talk, I suppose Jennifer too at that stage, she was his partner. We did talk a lot about food and the philosophy of food, but also he introduced me to the thinking of Epicurus. Epicureanism is not about eating a lot. It's a, a philosophy that's linked to the Stoics, and it's about enjoying perhaps feasting on one beautiful potato. It's about finding pleasure in small things. Mm -hmm. And so we talked a lot about that. And we would have a gathering of, say, 10, 12 people at my house or his his place. Out of that came then talking with Gay Bilson from Sydney and um, Graham Pont, who was a, a university lecturer. And a lot of this was based around the work of Bria Savarin, mm-hmm. uh, an 18th century philosopher who's famous for having said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are. But we enjoyed that philosophizing. Some people thought it was a wank, but personally, I, in, I enjoyed <laughs> I'm it. I'm just a pragmatic journalist. I thought it was no, just a I d- I, because, and I, They thought, let's do it. And, of course, let's do this symposium. 
And we'd have it, of course, in Adelaide, and we had it at Carclew. So a few of us here, Barbara Santich, myself, we set up this three-day event, and the first night, you know, I mean, it was a bit of a wank. The first night (laughs) was to do with humbleness. So we would turn up. It was called the Brown Bread meal, and everybody was asked to bring something. These are the least humble people in the whole of the city. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Nigel. <laughs> and so we would bring a loaf of homemade brown bread and some preserves, perhaps, and we would gather. The following day, we had a very simple lunch, and it was crayfish and a, a real homemade mayonnaise. And then we had uh, the final uh, dinner, though, was this great dinner done by Chong and Philip Searle. And it was an absolute triumph. Was that the jellied seascape, the basket of goose and venison and the pyramid of pigeons? That's (laughs) right. Okay. It was an absolute... We'll never see anything like that again. And money was no object. They'd gone and bought a fish tank and jellied the soup in the fish tank. So when we walked into this table, we walked in to this seascape sitting there on the table. Nigel conceded earlier that, in fact, whilst he thought it was all a bit of wank at the time, Mm. it it continues to this day. But he did say that there was some positives that flowed out of the back of that. Yeah, I didn't see them at the time. But the thing is... The, the general public couldn't have, you know, couldn't have cared less uh, about it. It was a, a small group of, of food, in, food and client intellectuals and, and yeah, the, the stuff, you know, the people I was writing for couldn't have cared less about that stuff. They just wanted to know was it, did it taste good or not. But what I then saw was the, the, the spin-off, the ripples that came out of that and it was chefs like Kath and others who, who took part who would go away and cook stuff employing the philosophies and the thoughts and all the knowledge and stuff that they'd gained through this sort of, these sorts of events. And then that was where the ripple effect started to happen. And it would go out and it would affect other people who perhaps hadn't been to, to a symposium, didn't even know it existed, but they'd see what these chefs were doing and then they would emulate that and, 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 and carry it forward. And I think that it gave a, a sort of a, a rationale, a bit of a structure, some sort of underpinning for that eight or ten years that I regard as, as sort of a golden period mm. in, in, uh, in restaurants in, in Adelaide. What was it about South Australia that put us at the pinnacle? I mean, clearly the Don Dunstan era had a significant impact. I mean, his changing of the laws in, in relation to mm. alcohol, mm. Uh, well, but, but having, also having opened, uh, promoting the outdoor dining. dining. Yeah. Outdoor dining was, mm. was terrific. Mm. I mm. spoke to... Um, a fellow who um, used he a fellow called Enzo Clampets, and he had a place called Enzo's in the Burnside Shopping Centre. And when Don did this, and Don Dunstan and and his then partner would come and even if it was raining, to make a point, would come and sit outside um, <laughs> at Enzo's to mm. say, "Come and do it," because mm. people say, what in, the, "What in the hell are you doing out there?" That was part of it, but. I think one of the the real advantages that Adelaide had in those days and continues to have is access to winemakers. I was going to say wineries. And and access to producers. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that you you don't have in Sydney or Melbourne or even Brisbane and not even really in Perth. And Adelaide has a number of unique characteristics as a food city and and that's one of them. Yeah, Don Dunstan wineries, outdoor dining – 
One thing that we have not touched on uh, was fusion cuisine. Yes, now, yes. And it was actually a very important thing that we had here. The Americans think they invented fusion cuisine. And by and large, most people have only ever experienced confusion cuisine. Yes. But here we had, um, we had not just Chong Lu, we had Cedric Yu, and we had Michael Vermard, who cooked with Cedric Yu. Um, and they did, I can still remember a couple of things that I had there. Um, and although they were coming from a very um, Chinese, Asian um, uh, background, well, not Michael Vumar, but it did slip into Nouvelle Cuisine and really became very much part of the philosophy of using what was best mm. and not sticking to those classics of, yeah. uh, you know, Tornado Rossini or, you know, Pheasant Ala, something or other. That whole fusion uh, period was, was really interesting because... Um, most chefs, I, I, I think, um, are derivative to some extent. You know, you read the books and you tweak them a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't very many chefs, um, and certainly not many today, who I regard as, as truly original, who actually come up with a thought that hasn't, you know, it, it's unique. has not been done yes, anywhere else. Yes, It's very difficult to do. Chong Lu, I think, is one of those chefs. Sure. Um, and I could probably name one or two others that we, we've... And got, in his you know. time, because he's now unfortunately very ill, Philip Searle, I think Philip Searle and Chong were the... You know, people say cooking is an art. No, it's not. It's a well-honed craft. If there are artists, it's Philip Searle and Chong Lu. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, yes, I'd agree with that. You knew Philip Searle's food better than, than I did. I mean, mm-hmm. I ate at Possums twice, I think. Mm-hmm. He was right next door to um, uh, Anne, to Alder, Anne Mr. Yeah. Augustine, Augustine tonight. Mm-hmm. So we had, we've gone from this incredible golden era. And, and I suspect there was a bit of luck in there too because we just happened to have the right people living in South mm-hmm. Australia, people who were enticed and excited by the opportunities that, that presented mm-hmm. themselves. And so, you know, you've run through many of those names already, uh, big names in the food game. But then we go forward and some of those, as you say, felt the need to cross the border for whatever reason, mm-hmm. to prove themselves in another market. We suffered the brain drain. Why did they all think they have to go to Sydney? You know, Luca Threptus went to Sydney, Philip Searle went to Sydney, so many people went to Sydney. Yeah. We also, of course, saw uh, the end of the long lunch. That was devastating. Yeah, changed, didn't yes. it? The long lunch certainly affected Nettie's, didn't it? Yeah. You know, the, the loss of the long lunch. I'm not saying it was a good thing that blokes used to hang around there until four or five o'clock spending lots of money and not going back to work, but it was good for restaurants. Mm. I remember going to Nettie's once when I was at the advertiser with a few other people, uh, I think Lance Campbell and a few people. Like mm-hmm. Philip might have been there. I don't know Philip White. But a number of us. And I, we had a long lunch at Nettie's uh, with Chong Lu cooking. And I got back to the advertiser and realised with horror that I'd spent my whole week's pay on lunch. Wow. Oh. <laughs> it was a good lunch? Mm. It was a very good lunch. <laughs> so the 90s. What did you have to have? What sort of grit and grunt did you have to have to get through the 90s? Because it was an era when restaurants became, I know, Nigel, you've referenced it as dumbed down, sadly. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Also, things had to become cheaper 
because of, you know, when the credit crunch hit and um, things had to become more casual. That's what's helped the dumbing that's down. And, that, and, that's and that is a trend that continues, now. you know. Things are getting cheaper and more casual mm. as we speak. And so there were these exceptions in that period in the 90s. You know, mm. there were people who were still doing magnificent things. Mm. It was just that they became fewer and further between mm. as we saw the introduction of the Italian cafes um, and the proliferation of those throughout mm. the 90s. Mm. Um, we've come through that era and we now have some remarkable chefs here in South it's Australia. It's coming back up. Yes, it's coming back up. Oh, it's been coming back up for a few years. For a while. For a long time, I found writing about restaurants in Adelaide a very boring experience. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there were few exceptions, of course. But by and large, that sense of excitement and discovery had gone out of it. I remember uh, when Maggie Beer closed the pheasant farm, uh, I said, well, you've done your job, Maggie. I mean, everyone's got olive oil on the table now. Everyone's mm -hmm. got sun-dried tomatoes on the table. Mm -hmm. Anyone can go and buy bunches of fresh coriander mm -hmm. or fresh basil and the job's done. You know, we will go, you know, onwards and upwards. And and I and it didn't happen. It sort of plateaued. You're a food well, writer. You've experienced, as you've referenced many times yeah. in the interview, the golden era. And you come into an era where you're not feeling inspired by what you say. No, so I was disappointed. And, and you would look around and, of course, you know, try and find the people who, who were still trying to push boundaries and there have always been some, but that, that whole sense of excitement seemed to have gone out. But then I think, I can't, I haven't really tried to put a date on it, but it would be five or six years ago, I reckon. We started to get um, a number of, of places opening with, with really good chefs. I only had people like Jocks on Philo, you know. Mm. At, yeah, at, I mean, fabulous. At, yeah, yeah. Initially, initially at McGill Estate, cooking mm. pretty conventional, um, sort of, you know, straight down the line. Um, uh, you know, classic stuff. I and mean, that was the brief sure. uh, to go with the wine. And that's probably why. And, you know, when you think of Africola, really um, putting um, roasted cauliflower on the map, really. Yeah, whole, you know, big chunks of roasted yeah. cauliflower and cabbage and stuff. No, what Duncan Wilgham made, you see, we started to get these guys uh, at work. And now, and there are a number of people like at Jolly's Boathouse, Tony, uh, mm. Tony Carroll, yeah. classically trained, mind you. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, we no longer have the sort of the the renegade artists and, and drug addicts and, mm. and stuff mm. um, you know, where people thought that all the money that went into the till belonged to them and then they stuck mm. it up their nose. That's right. Um, you know, all that used to happen. And, sure. And it did. I'd yes. go and interview chefs in the middle of the night and we'd open, open you know, at home and open the fridge door and all that would be in there would be a bottle of Stolic. That was home cooking for them, drink the vodka. Mm. And that's all changed. Now the chefs have, have we've got, an extraordinary number of chefs in this city who have got a, a, amazing pedig pedigrees. They've worked in really interesting and demanding restaurants around the world. And they're here in Adelaide. And they will, And the ones who do come here, they'll say, why didn't I come here earlier? Because, again, you have this business. You can talk to the winemakers. You don't talk to the reps. You talk to the winemakers. Mm. You don't talk to, to the person who comes around with a truck full of veggies. You go talk to the, the person who, who grows the carrots. The producer, and, yeah. You know, and, and you get to know them. This has, I think, coincided with a broader shift in the community where people are much more interested in provenance of both wine you and bet. food 
they're much more interested. I mean, look at the, all the dietary. You ask any chef now how many dietary variations they've got to have in their menus. But also the um, this, uh, you know, going to the producers or being interested in where something has come from. I think this has led to an Epicurean uh, approach to food in that now we can really... And now we can eat just something really beautiful, like beautiful carrots and make a dish of it. Mm, sure. Or, um, and I think we're really enjoying produce more, really loving produce. It is possible to put on a restaurant menu and charge for it something exquisitely from just one vegetable. Yeah, that and, and chefs like um, uh, Oliver Edwards, uh, who's a young chef up at Summertown Aristologist. Yes. He's an original chef. He's cooking stuff that he hasn't got out of books. And it is largely vegetable. It is celebrating vegetables. I mean, Whatever he, he can put yeah. his hands on, yeah. yes. And he'll, he'll have some fish, but it will be um, uh, um, fish that is sustainable, mm. bought direct from the fisherman. He, uh, the fisherman phones up and says, look, I've got a I've few. I've got this. I've got a few mm. garfish, I've got a few this and that. Um, and that's what they, they do. And that's what they now sell as their selling point. Do we have reason to still be very excited about where we're at now and, and what the future might hold? Yeah, I think we do. Um, the, you know, the, there are a lot of issues that we have to have to deal with. I mean, every day you read stories, you know, about should we, you know, can we afford to go on eating meat? You know, it's it's it's, it's hard well, on the pe- environment. Yes, and we should um, we we eat less. Absolutely. And before we wind up, I mean, I, I do want to just pull apart the where we're at now in terms of those restaurants that are leading the space. What we need now to help the experience is better training in front of house. Sure. Nigel? Well, we seem to used to have, have that. We, we used to have a, a Regency College uh, thing, a part of TAFE. Uh, they, they still turn people out, but I wonder whether but they, they... don't... You can't teach personality. You can't train for attitude. No. You can do that on the job, yeah. you know. Um, I don't want to be asked constantly, did you enjoy your meal? And I don't want someone to say to me, how's your day been? <laughs> because I don't know them that well. You know, the Oxford, when it was run by the people who now have um, the old lion, Mm. they were very good at training their staff in things to say, meaningful things to say. The art form of communication. Mm. Kath, you mean when you ask for another gin and tonic, you don't want somebody to say, no worries? (laughs) (laughs) I think we're getting on to something else here, yes. No worries. Why should we worry? On that note... Um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank, it's been lovely. Thank you for connecting. And I think, you know, I think we've got reason to still be very buoyant. Absolutely. And to be celebrating what this magnificent state of ours is still doing in leading that food game. I think um, we, we, we bat way above our weight. I would argue that, that Adelaide and South Australia is the best placed city in the whole of Australia when it comes to the breadth and quality of the, of the food and wine supply. Uh, Adelaide is actually exceedingly well-placed and for a young chef, I can't think of a better place to be. Brilliant. Nicely put. What a pleasure it's been. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you both so much. No worries, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it.
To subscribe to the Forager's free weekly food and wine email, go to indaily.com.au forward slash subscribe. And don't forget to look out for the SA Life Food and Wine List 2019. It's in newsagents now for more than 350 pages of the best of South Australian food and wine. I'm Nicole Huck, and I'll be back next Wednesday with another fascinating guest or two in the Forager podcast. Thanks for listening.